Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The National Gallery of Art House is one of the most celebrated collections of Dutch paintings in the world. Over the past several years, the gallery has been updating its out-of-print catalog of 17th-century Dutch paintings in preparation for publishing in a new online. This lecture, recorded on March 23, 2014, at the National Gallery of Art, this, the inaugural publication in the gallery's online edition series, is discussed and demonstrated by the gallery's Curator of Northern Baroque Paintings and by the curatorial, technical, and publishing team behind this innovative program initially funded by the Getty Foundation. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Arthur Wheelock, and I am curator of Dutch and Flemish paintings here at the National Gallery. And I welcome you um, to a very different program than what uh, our normal Sunday lectures are all about. And um, so I'll get ready. We'll have a little, we're having a little team effort, as you can see from the screen, uh, where I will begin the afternoon session with um, a discussion of the Dutch program, and then Jennifer Hennel will follow me, uh, who is my wonderful assistant in the Dutch department and sort of the heart and soul of this new digital world that we're going to, to explore today. Judy Metro, our great head of uh, the, um, the editor-in-chief, and um, who has been part of the team right from the very beginning, and then Sally Bory, who is senior editor for Permanent Collections, will follow up with the, the plans for the future. This is a very much of a digital uh, experience today, and so the first rule is to turn off all your cell phones. <laughs> And if you want to take notes, we are thrilled that you take notes on iPads or whatever, but um, the light, as you know, from the screens can distract other people. So if you want to take notes, please um, take them at the back of the room, then won't bother other people. So isn't it weird what a kind of strange world we live in? But <laughs> um, in any event, we are here to... Um, talk about something that um, I would never have expected myself to be up here talking about, um, being a guy who loves slides, who has um, written a lot of books over the years that we are now entering into a new mode of publication, and that's online publications. And um, so what we have is sort of a teaser. This is, we're going to talk about the Dutch, new, new catalog of Dutch paintings, that will uh, launch in about a month's time. So in a month's time, you will be able to explore on your own many of the wonderful things that Jen Hennel, Hennel in particular will be sharing with us today. I will provide sort of a background to why we're doing this and what the hopes are and aspirations of this project. Jen will sort of go into what the online catalog of Dutch paintings will really look like and what are the wonderful opportunities that it will provide you for exploring this amazing collection here at the National Gallery and the kind of research opportunities that it provides. Um, and then Judy will talk about the broader scope. This catalog, the Dutch catalog, is one uh, of um, a whole large enterprise which we're embarking on of... Um, doing all of our catalogs in the future um, in an online mode. So Judy will talk about that, and Sally will talk about the couple of projects that are really forthcoming that we should see um, uh, in the near future. Then 
What we would like to do is invite you to ask questions at the end of this presentation period. So it's a two-part thing for the presentations. And then we would very much like we'll all come up here and we will also have with us Laszlo Zeka, who has been an important, uh, crucial part of this whole thing because he is the guy who's made it all happen, implementing all this digital world, making this wonderful um, um, new mode of publication possible. So... What you see here will be one, two, three, four, five, um, and we are a small part of a rather amazing enterprise, and I must say this has been something that I have uh, been thrilled to be part of. It's this project, the, the fruits of what you're seeing today, or the sort of teaser that you're seeing today, has been going on for about five years, five or six years, even more, and it has been an uh, incredibly devoted effort by a large team of people at the gallery, from the registrars to the photographers, the conservators, the art handlers, to um, archivists, um, digital people, sort of under the, under the broader, broad framework of the curatorial and, uh, and the editorial worlds. This has been a team of about 15 to 20 people have met on a regular basis um, in the last three or four years, under the guidance of Jennifer Hennel, who's been our project manager, one of the, the key things of doing this is be able to speak many languages. Um, and I don't mean English, French, German. I mean digital talk and curatorial talk and editorial talk. And um, So we have been very fortunate that Jen has been able to provide that translating ability. So, um, all right, I'm going to start by um, introducing you to this building and give you a little bit of history of the Dutch collection and basically why we're why we doing this online catalog. And that, so here we have the, the National Gallery, as you know, the West Building, this fabulous building that was uh, built um, with funds provided from Andrew Mellon um, to be a National Gallery of Art. And with that um, funds came Mellon's collection and his uh, extraordinary gift of um, paintings um, and sculpture uh, to the, the gallery, which, as some of you have heard me talk about this before, that, w- that the full scope of Andrew Mellon's collection was about 51 paintings, which meant that when the gallery opened, the main job of the guards was to point you to the next painting. <laughs> so we have started with a small core, and that's Andrew Mellon on the right, um, and then... P.A.B. Widener on the left, and, and because it was called National Gallery of Art, it was not called the Mellon Gallery. The idea was to bring in collectors who would help make this collection large enough and imposing enough to be significant as a National Gallery of Art. And so with the combination of the uh, with a number of collectors, but in terms of the Dutch world, primarily Mellon and Widener, we ended up having a quite remarkable collection, a core collection of paintings that really reflected the tastes of these two great collectors, which Widener starts collecting about 1894. Mellon goes on to about 1930s, mid-30s, and that period of time. So there's a taste of these collectors during that period of time. It's a canon of art that they both subscribe to, and as a result, they have certain artists that they loved. They absolutely loved Rembrandt. Um, and so we have here Mellon's 
great self-portrait of Rembrandt. And here we have Widener's portrait of Rembrandt's wife, Saskia. So that's, we've been able to combine with these two collections, 24 Rembrandt, Rembrandt school paintings that come from this collection. When I came here in 1973, those 24 paintings were about a third of the entire collection of Dutch art. It was a very skewed view of the 17th century, I must say. It was, had a very much a taste of that. So they liked Hals, Franz Hals. We have eight paintings by Hals from Melvin Widener. Um, and so, likewise, you have... So with Rembrandt and, and Hals, yeah, it's pretty big. You know, group of the Dutch paintings. They liked genre paintings. Wonderful paintings of uh, daily life, uh, the elegant uh, Terborg painting on the left, or the more sort of bourgeois view of Delft from uh, Peter de Hoek. But these are all paintings that you can see on the, the backdrop of the, the wood panel galleries, oak panel galleries, that were these paintings, these wonderful paintings hang that uh, were part of this gift. Now, it was, it's clear that um, Mellon and Widener, particularly Mellon, was very keen on having high-quality paintings. And this has always been part of the, the, the sense of the collecting of, the, of paintings here at the National Gallery, that, that we we're always, as curators, said, is that painting the kind of painting that Andrew Mellon would have wanted for the National Gallery. It's sort of a standard that we have been held up to over the years, and it's a fabulous standard because it is really the best of the best. They collected what he saw as the best of the best that was representative and important for a great National Gallery. Um, So we have that very beautiful installation with all these paintings that each and every one of them stands for you know, something that you can spend time in front of and really enjoy and engage yourself with. That was certainly the core concern. Now, what has um, been interesting over the years, this is one of the Mellon's great paintings, uh, Albert Kalp's Massa Dordrecht. Um, Mellon loved, and Widener too, loved their paintings to be peaceful. The idea that the Dutch Republic was formed out of war and the revolt would, is not, not a concern of theirs. They really could care less about that. They wanted something that su- suggested the sort of beauty and the harmony and the peacefulness, the good Protestant country of the Netherlands, that that was something that they saw as sort of, yeah, something that we could aspire to in this country. There was a connection between the Dutch world and the American world that they felt very strongly. And they liked that sense of peace and harmony and beauty, strength, the international, the sort of harbor scenes like that that have the ships that go around the world that bring trade, that represent the world empire of the 17th century Dutch. Um, What they didn't like were things like that. And so this is a painting of something that was probably even more important to the 17th century Dutch than that peaceful harbor. And that is the worry about when you go far from home, what kind of dangers are out there. There are no rocks off the Dutch coast. They didn't exist. And they didn't, certainly man-eating rocks like that one. I mean, they didn't exist. And so when a painting, a big painting like this by Backhausen, shows something entirely different and not at all what Mellon Widener wanted to see. So when I was told that we had to do things that 
acquire paintings that look like Mel and Widener, what they, particularly Mellon, would aspire to have, nobody ever thought that this was part of the deal. And what this little comparison, right off the bat, I'd like to point out that there are changes in taste, changes in the canon of Dutch art. What was important, and you know, there's all sorts of reasons why Mellon wanted paintings like that, but there are also a lot of reasons the Dutch painted paintings like that. And for us to represent the 17th century Netherlands, we need paintings that show the fear, the danger of being away, that, that in this possibility of death, I mean, death was always uh, happening for people who were sailing away for six, eight months. I mean, families were left bereft by all these people away. But there was always a hope that somehow God would come through and save them at the last moment, a little bit of the storm's passing. So these paintings actually have incredible morals to them about how to face danger, how to believe in some kind of of salvation that will be coming in the the midst of all the dangers of, of the world. So while... We had this great core collection. Over the years, as a curator, I've been trying to find ways to push the edges of that collection to show parts of what the Dutch art, what, what the Dutch created in the 17th century and why they were creating it. We also, in these paintings that we had, had a wonderful opportunity to have a fabulous conservation department here and, and a wonderful framing department. So we've been able to reframe in Dutch frames. These are both Dutch 70th century frames. They, when I came here, they were in fancy gold frames. They were very brown. Um, these paintings have both been restored. Um, so we had brown paintings and brown frames on brown walls and no lights. And it was really quite a different world. I mean, it was a very different world. So over the years, Rembrandt, these are the same paintings that have been here since 1943 or so, but they're very different paintings than they were in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. It was only in the 1980s we started restoring these that we start to find the faces coming out, the pinks of the faces, all the kind of colors, the kind of three-dimensionality. There's a whole different Rembrandt now than it used to be. And that has been part of the exciting thing of Restoration, taking a painting to the lab and taking off all those layers of discolored varnish, finding something underneath, and then you could do things like take x-rays and infrared and UV, and we can take an x-ray of the head of Rembrandt's uh, self-portrait here, and what do we discover with looking at the lead white, looking at all the, th- the thickness and the way the, the head is modeled, we can see the, there all of these um, strokes. Now you can see it in the x-ray, you can see how thick, those lead whites are. That's something you register. It's like taking an x-ray of your body. The bones have density, so the lead white has density. And you also see density here. That's a black hat. That should have no density. But in the x-ray, there's density, which means it used to be a white hat. So originally, that painting had, he had, wore, wore, had a white hat. So we discovered these amazing things that we didn't know about until we took it to the lab and had these kind of opportunities to study them. Um, we also, but this is a nice example of a painting that used to be a little bit brown. Um, it looks a little green here in the slide, but it was pretty brown. Um, so there we restored it, and you can see right here with the, with the Vermeer, the transformation of that image into something, whoa, that's a whole different thing. Um, different sense of lights and the sense of balance and the harmony, um, color, all these elements that 
make it a very different painting. And not only that, we discovered, for example, that that black frame actually had gold trim to it. Oh, my God, never knew it. Never knew it. We took x-rays and studied it and fine. And David Bull cleaned this with a little scalpel. Took him six months to take off the black paint that had covered that to reveal. And then you have light coming in through the window, this wonderful gold curtain up here and the light behind it, the light through thickness and the little gold edge of the light hitting in the wall. And then the light swoops down here, caught by the table, the hand, that comes right up and that gold now pulls your eye right up around the figure and that, in a way that was never possible, only because we were able to bring this to the lab and restore it. Painting after painting, we've now cleaned virtually every painting that came into the collection from the Widener Mellon collections. Every painting's been cleaned, and every one of them, I swear to you, have found something remarkable, some new amazing thing we had no idea existed before. For example, this little girl. And she's, I mean, I always, and I had a, when I came here, I had, I'm sorry, I, I probably heard the story, but it's just, every time I see this painting, I, had, I go back to these moments when I first arrived as a fellow in 1973, and I had a wonderful opportunity to be here with a Crest professor by the name of Bob DeFries, and Bob DeFries, um, and I had both written dissertations on Vermeer, and we decided for various reasons, we had nothing to do that year. I mean, we, I had finished my dissertation. I had nothing to do. He thought he was going to advise Carter Brown, and Carter Brown could care less that Bob DeFries was here, so he had nothing to do. And um, together, we said, oh, well, hell, why don't we do something? So we decided to do a little Vermeer project. And so we took down all these paintings. The conservation had only begun a year before. Nothing had been cleaned in this building at all. Nothing had been cleaned. So we decided to do this, study this little painting, and the other Vermeers, and took them to the lab and took them out of the frame. And these had big gold frames around them. And just to, to, as a graduate student, to sit there and hold a Vermeer in your hands and look at the front and look at the back and look at the edges and look at it under the microscope and just spend time with it. And so, in fact, so much time. This little girl and I spent a month together. She was on my desk for a month. We know more secrets about each other's lives than you could imagine. Anyhow, so one thing we discovered in that is that underneath this girl was another with a funny shape. My God, what on earth? See, there's, this is a reflectogram, infrared reflectogram, and there's the girl. You can see her head. And there's this big black shape underneath. Well, what we didn't know is until so you turn it over, and that turned out to be a hat of a guy. So the, this was painted on top of another painting with a, with a man with a black hat. And uh, we could see his, his face here. So this was a kind of amazing, wow, moment. What does that mean? So we're trying to do all that research on, on that. So on, So then... With those new acquisitions and those restorations, I have been doing research on this collection. These were all part of research toward a catalog, the catalog of the Dutch paintings that I wrote. Oh, I meant to bring that book. Imagine I have a book right here. So, so that is the catalog of the Dutch paintings I wrote in 1995. It only took 20 years to do. Um, 
We won't get into that, but anyhow, it took 20 years to do. But in that time, we were able to acquire a number of works that beyond what Widener Mellon and Crest and others had, had brought to the gallery, we had been able to do research on the paintings. We had been able to, to clean a lot of the paintings. And it was an amazingly exciting moment to publish that catalog of this great collection. I'm very proud of that and still am very proud of it. But that was 1995. In 1995, that very year, we did a Vermeer show. And that painting on the cover, the girl writing a letter, was in that Vermeer show, as were all the other Vermeers. And so guess what? That Vermeer show was not mentioned in the catalog. Already out of date. The very year. In 1995, we also built the Dutch cabinet galleries. The very year. And the Dutch cabinet galleries allowed us, because they were small little galleries, intimate galleries of the scale of Dutch homes, allowed us to acquire small paintings. We never could buy or acquire small paintings. So suddenly, and we also could do other exhibitions. So this is a little Judith Leister show that was in there. Some of you may have seen. Um, another show that's not mentioned in the catalog of the 1995, because it was after that. But there is a wonderful, all these paintings have now part of the collection. So there's a Beauchart, and there's a, a Corta, and these are the two paintings, Fabulous still life paintings. Unbelievably fabulous still life paintings. You know how many still life paintings were in the Mellon and Widener collection? None. Not a one. We now have over 30 Dutch and Flemish still life paintings. So, there were a couple in the 1995 catalog. By then we'd had a couple, but... These paintings are not in there. This Beauchart, this wonderful Beauchart, this amazing Beauchart with this beautiful flowers and rendering of tulips and, and, and lilacs and, and roses and all like all these flowers, all these still ice, what, you know, couldn't have been done from life because these flowers didn't blossom at the same time. But this one, which is so special, has this inscription at the bottom in blue and letters written in gold, written in French, and it says... In French, the angelic hand of the great painter of flowers, Ambrosius, renowned even to the banks of Moray. Now, Moray turns out to be uh, a settlement of the Dutch Republic in Africa, the farthest reaches of the Dutch Republic. So, Beauchart, the most famous painter, painted the very year, that inscription is painted the very year that he painted that painting because he died that very year as well. So we've been able to find all this amazing provenance but it indi- about this painting, but also indicates his significance, importance as a painter in terms of the Dutch, that they would write something, the angelic hand of the great painter of flowers. Incredible. And then this little quarta, wonderful, the sort of asparagus and the beautiful colors and the sort of subtlety of colors, one of the most remarkable paintings that Andrew Mellon would never have bought. He would have never heard of Corta. In fact, Arthur Wheelock, as a student, never heard of Corta. Arthur Wheelock, when he first came to the gallery as a curator in 1973, never had heard of Corta. And now, he is, his paintings go for millions of dollars. Talk about changing canon of Dutch art. What, I mean, wow, to have this sort of transformation of an artist out of this, kind of like what happened to Vermeer in the, in the mid-19th century. Suddenly, this artist becomes this sort of special, 
And we see him, we understand him in ways that were, were never possible before. So in these years, now, post-1995, this wonderful painting of an old man by Jan Lievens, a uh, contemporary of Rembrandt. We had a great Lievens show, which you may have seen, um, a very expressive crony of an old guy. This very beautiful, small painting in the cabinet galleries um, of Gottfried Schalken, of his lady, very tender. She has a wonderful blue hat, not a red hat, uh, blue hat, and is weaving this wreath of flowers, beautiful little flowers, thinking probably about love lost, and the love is there in the background, very sweet and tender painting. Um, one of the great paintings that did come, not from the Mellon Widener collection, but from the Crest collection, was this huge Sandra Daman. So one of the curatorial things I've been trying to do is get paintings to connect to other works in the collection. So we had this extraordinary Sandradam of the Church of Sir Togenbosch, um, and so it was important to have another great uh, church interior. So we had this wonderful painting by Emmanuel de Witte of the church at, at Amsterdam, which is very different in terms of here the light-filled interior, and now you have de Witte, who has a whole different personality with strong accents of light and dark shades, shadows and light and shadows all across things that are entirely different view of a world and a world where you have figures and sort of whole activity of life in the church, very different than this very stately and idealized, not, I mean, real, very real feeling, but sort of purified view of that church in the Sandrodon world. The Hals, Hals, what a great Hals painting by a portrait of an artist by the name of Adrian Van Ostada. Well, we have all these Hals portraits, eight Hals paintings, but Harlem had a lot of artists working in that city, and so we thought, oh my God, we have no other portrait in our collection of somebody wearing pink. <laughs> so, damn it, we got to get that. So, hey, there's a great painting by um, Versprunk, uh, Cornelius Versprunk, of uh, Adrian Stilta. He's a standard bearer, big, impressive pose with same time as all of these halls from the halls and the freedom and the quickness of brushstroke, but now we can see another artist painting with a very different materials and very different sheen of fabric, totally different in handling from what Hals does. So we are able to bring together well that, and we have, of course, this wonderful painting by Judith Leister, a self-portrait, but another, another Harlem artist, but here again, yet another Harlem artist. So we have Jan de Bry's double portrait of his parents, um, um, who, in this very beautiful, classical, classicizing way, show yet another facet of Harlem portraiture. So over time, we've been able to add a dimension of Harlem portraiture that's beyond just the Franz Hals world, which is important though it is, is just in the 17th century, was, he was one of many artists who were fighting for patronage and commissions from all the wealthy people, important people in that city. <clears throat> we've been very fortunate to be able to acquire a number of wonderful landscape paintings. Uh, Albert Kalp over here, the, uh, the Kaufmans gave this wonderful, uh, this is a painting of uh, Vowerman's, a battle scene, a first battle scene, a real battle scene, which is very cool, uh, that uh, talks about the war that we don't have in our collection. And then this amazing Solomon von Rostal painting, that um, is uh, one of the great treasures in recent years. One of the paintings that came to this collection 
that had been um, uh, through the restitution of works stolen by the Nazis. This is a painting that was actually owned by Goering. Goering had taken over the, uh, the gallery of, of Houtsticker in, in Amsterdam, and this painting was, became, was stolen out of that gallery. And over the years, we've been able to... Uh, the Houtsticker collection has been uh, returned to the family, and as a result, we've been able to acquire... Uh, uh, all these paintings in the Chaussik collection have now been sold, but this is the best, the most important one of all, the, one of the great landscapes of the 17th century. So that all expands the kind of collection. One of the things that we've also done is push the edges way out in terms of what the, Mel and Widener would have thought. Um, of course, Mellon never wanted nudes at the National Gallery, so not only this is a nude, a couple nudes together, nonetheless, um, but they're important nudes, um, or important, the, the individuals are important um, in terms of, <laughs> uh, anyhow, Adam and Eve doing their thing, and uh, so this is a history painting, a history painting, history stories in the Bible and mythology were not part of that, except for Rembrandt. That was okay if he did it, but nobody else. Um, this is something that, as far as Mel and Widener are concerned, this is what the Italians should be doing, not Dutch. And so they didn't like the idea that Dutch artists went anywhere outside the country. So we've been trying to bring in a, examples of artists who went and studied landscapes, who studied um, the, the, the human figure. They looked at antique sculpture. They brought this classical tradition into the collection. They looked at Rubens. In fact, this painting hangs in the gallery. Uh, this uh, Henry Goltzius, I don't know if I told you the name of the artist, Henry Goltzius hangs together in the gallery with Peter Paul Rubens because Rubens and Goltzius knew each other. They and Rubens came to Harlem um, to to. To, to speak with Goltzius, and a year or two, year, two years later, Goltzius paints his painting very much in the Rubens style, something that really is a very new, was very different than the traditional character of the Dutch collection here at the gallery. And then, <clears throat> more recently, we acquired this wonderful painting by Hendrik Terbruggen, one of the great artists of the 17th century, who was from Utrecht, who went to Italy, became inspired by Caravaggio, and brought back a whole large-scale, idealized views of, of pastoral life, often seen in paintings such as this great bagpipe player, um, signed and dated 1624. Another type of artist, another type of art that, in fact, was not ever thought about in the early 20th century. Um, and only, even Caravaggio wasn't really much thought about in this country until the, the 1950s. So it's sort of surprising to think how recent these names that seem to be so important to us today were not part of the canon of what was important for Dutch art or, or any art in, in general. One event, this brings us up to today. Um, because all of these paintings that we've just been looking at uh, the recent acquisitions, the Tabrugan, the Salma van Ralstal, the Goltzius, the, the Levens, none of these things are in the 1995 catalog. <clears throat> so we were faced with a situation in 2004. <clears throat> we had to make a big decision because in 2004, that 1995 catalog 
went out of print. And so we had a major collection of Dutch art. Um, and as a student, I had always gone to collection catalogs as a core research tool. And so I was very conscious of the fact, my God, there are a lot of great paintings, all these Rembrandts, Vermeers, Kaups, Halses. That is the core material to, for study, and it's out of print. And not only that, we have all these 30 new acquisitions or so since 1995 that aren't, in, aren't published at all. So what do we do? And this was, a, this was a big challenge. Judy Metro and I spent some time talking about this. What are the options? Do we reprint this catalog? Well, that didn't make any sense because 30 acquisitions weren't in it. Vermeer Show's not in it. All these things are not there, re- restorations that we've done recently. Um, so we've, we've thought a little bit about online, what that might mean. <clears throat> And uh, then a couple of years later, the Getty came up with an uh, initiative that uh, provided funding for online catalogs of, of permanent collections. And I said, oh, my God, that's exactly what we're talking about. Um, and so this, online, this initiative called Online Scholarly Catalog Initiative, what we call OSCE around here, um, <clears throat> was something that uh, we applied for a grant. There was, the grants were given to, I think, nine museums, and we, we were the category of having had a published catalog we wanted to move into the online world. <clears throat> and we were able to get that uh, grant, and that has been instrumental and crucial to the efforts that we've made in the interim. And so, ever, so since then, you know, that late... 2008, 2009, we've been working on trying to figure out what this means. It meant revising all the entries, the 90 entries in that catalog. It meant writing new entries in all the 30 acquisitions or so that had come in. It meant new photography because it all had to be digitized. We had to do all sorts of research on bibliography and uh, and uh, try to, up, to update that. A whole We had thought carefully about the fact that a book only has like 3,500 copies or whatever. Online, suddenly you're going exponentially larger. You're reaching audiences of all types. People come to this site, will be coming to the site for all different reasons. So how do you communicate with them? How do you create an environment where they feel comfortable, where they will walk into this and know what they're doing and not get lost? Um, and so we have thought very long and hard about how to do that, and we have had all these advisors of, of different types. Um, and uh, we are, you know, pretty excited by what we've come up with. And I and I and I really owe a lot to my colleagues that are right in front of me, but also to many who are not here to to speak to you to, to having made this a reality. Um, one of the things we want to be sure that this is seen as a scholarly, as scholarly as a book. So all of the new entries have been third-party peer-reviewed. This is a big thing in the academic world, so we want to be sure that they are seen as a scholarly um, um, edition <clears throat> that is um, you know, something that will be valid. But I think I've talked enough. I wanted to uh, really turn it over now to... Jennifer Hennel, who knows a hell of a lot more than I do about how this hall works, and um, and I'm just very grateful to you, um, as well as to Judy, Sally, and, and Laszlo for all that you have done 
to make this a reality, to make this possible today. Thank you. Well, it's hard to follow that up. Um, so, you know, we, whenever we started thinking about this project, um, it, was, it was tricky because, you know, not only had Arthur spent so many years of his life working on all of this content, but how do you convey enthusiasm like that um, on a website? You know, so we basically have to bottle Arthur up and make him a hologram is the best thing I can think of. Um, Actually, the, the project itself, um, I'm, I'm very happy to say, was very much rooted in the curatorial values that Arthur and I and our colleagues hold dear um, to uh, find a collection object through browse and through search, to cite scholarly content, to be able to compare images, to trust that the information that you're looking at will always be available, to export the content for later use, and then to allow a user to compile and manage information on the gallery's collection. So with those, those items in mind, the criteria in mind, that's what we focused all of our function around. Um, and again, we wanted, we wanted to also have this, this underlying mission of being able to give that aha moment um, to fellow art historians um, or future art historians and art lovers alike um, and convey the excitement again um, that Arthur has for this collection. So work started in earnest in 2009 on the project, um, as we have it now. And since then, we have evolved the project from kind of putting a book online, which is pretty standard, to um, a proprietary website. And this is a wireframe, otherwise known as like a blueprint of a website, so something connected to the NGA but not necessarily part of the actual website. Um, and then we moved to in full integration with the NGA public website. So there's actually going to be no, no separation between when you come to NGA.gov or, or anything else. You're going to come to one art object page. And what I'm showing you on the left-hand side is the current art object page. And the online edition, uh, as we're now calling it going forward, is on the right. Um, so we have this new concept that I'm going to let Judy and Sally talk to you more about. Um, our systematic catalog initiative um, has grown into NGA Online Editions, the new vehicle that we're going to be using for put, putting all of our permanent collection objects on painting, sculpture, and decorative arts um, going forward. It's always going to be online, which is really, really great. Um, as Arthur mentioned, it expands our audience to an exponential number, and we're really thrilled. Um, so I wanted to use this page as actually my jumping off point to going to the site itself. So Jeannie, can you bring that up? There with me. Sorry, can you guys hear me better? So this is our, our Dutch object page, and I wanted to start here because we assume that a lot of people are going to arrive at this art object page through search, um, ser either searching the collection up here, going to NGA search using the bar that's right here, or through Google, a third-party search engine, something like that. Um, when a user arrives at this page, like I said, there's no different different change excuse me, differentiation between a regular art object page and an online edition page, except for a few enhancements, and I'm going to go over those things. Um, a user still has the same capabilities that they have now on NGA.gov, and I hope you've had the chance to explore uh, NGA.gov since we redesigned it last year. You can add an object to favorites, and I'm, I'll talk about that briefly in a little bit. You can share an object. You can read the tombstone information, as we call it up here, the critical information about an art object. 
You can also come down here to the side and read, for example, the inscription text, um, the overview text that we've prepared on every single object in this catalog. Bear with me while we're clicking on things. Um, these overview texts uh, we've prepared um, with the able assistance and, uh, and wonderful good humor of Henriette Rahusen, who was just here briefly, but uh, one of the many people who worked on this project, to allow users to kind of skim into the, the collection information. Um, but if a user wants to, as we call it, dive into the information, you can click on Entry Text. They did this on purpose, so it would go slowly. Um, and the view changes. So what we are now in what we call reader mode. And by reader mode, we get a dual screen view of an entry so that you see the entry text right here on the left-hand side and the art object on the right. The tombstone information and relevant uh, critical information to the object is pushed up to the top, and that way a user has the opportunity to read the text on the screen. Um, you can obviously scroll through the text just like this, and we have a two-column approach so that if you want to give more prominence to the text while you're reading it, you can resize the columns. And if you want to give more prominence to the image, you can just pull it the other direction. Um, in addition to the individual columns, we also have links interwoven um, where you can jump to another collection object. Additionally, you can expand a footnote right there in the context of what you're reading, and it simply pushes the text down. So, and in this case, I'm, I have to say as a scholar myself, I'm pretty excited because we have full references here, so there's no flipping to the back of the book, which is really exciting. Um, the nice thing is, too, it's not going to overwrite any of the text you're reading, so you don't have to guess as to the context that you're in. Um, you can also continue scrolling through, and you'll notice that we also have some glossary terms highlighted. I'll get to that in just a moment. So if you wanted to find out about what infrared reflectography is, you get a definition right there on your screen. Just scroll down a little bit. Um, additionally, on, at the very bottom of the entry, we have all of the entries tagged with an artist tag and a, and a date stamp so that you know who wrote it and when they wrote it. And there's no question as far as um, the actual, the, the currentness of the, of the information. Yeah, yeah, basically you have a time. The, the clock's running, so get on it. Um, <laughs> no pressure. Um, it, it is, I, I should say as, a, as an aside, that is kind of a funny bit of pressure that we have faced with going online is that, you know, in the curatorial office we have, uh, so we, we put something up and basically as soon as it's up it's kind of out of date. So how do we not get into this kind of hamster wheel of feeling like we're a slave to this thing? Um, and that's going to be an ongoing challenge going forward. So just put a pin in that and, and remember that's something that we're, we're constantly evaluating here. Um, on the right-hand side, I draw your attention to figures. So we have all of the comparative images that we've mentioned in the text right here on um, the left-hand side of the screen. And you can scroll through in, in a list. Same with the footnotes. So if you, you want to expand them within the text here, you can do so, or you can actually just scroll through them on the side of your screen without having to leave your entry context. Um, and one other option I wanted to go back to 
is the comparative figures. So if I wanted to do just image comparison right here, not have to leave my screen, I can expand my comparative figure right here. Again, really great for those of us who are used to trying to fold pages in a book to make it work somehow to compare images. Um, additionally, if I want more features, I can click on Compare Image, and I get this really wonderful image viewer. So this is a dual image viewer, and I have two controls. I can zoom independently, and I can take my handy-dandy tool and measure if I want, which is pretty cool. Um, and the same goes for the principal image on the right-hand side. Um, I can also toggle here on either screen between the image that you're looking at and any comparative figure called out in the text. Um, another feature that we have is that if you select a technical image, which we have about 35 included in the catalog, the technical image offers some additional features. So um, you saw that this little bar appeared in the, in the center below the image. Um, we still have the dual controls, so you can zoom to a... A whatever uh, resolution that you want to be at. Um, but I can also lock my images, and the, the control on the opposite side goes away. So I only have one control here to zoom, and that allows me to zoom to exa exactly the same level. And again, I can use this measuring tool if I need to. And um, to better ex uh, examine the point that Arthur was making about the transparency or what this panel was used for b before, you can actually control the transparency of the image and see exactly where it lines up. This is one of my favorite features. I think it's pretty cool. If you can't tell, I'm biased. Um, but it's pretty great. We think that this is going to allow, again, our art historians and, and art lovers alike to have that aha moment for themselves. I mean, you, you may not have the good fortune of being able to put the Vermeer girl with the red hat on your desk for a month, but this is pretty good. It's a, it's a, good, it's a close second. Um, to, to simply just close out of the image viewer, which can only be accessed from the entry text, you just go up to the top, and close out, and you're back where you were. You can also toggle in reader mode, as we're referring to it, um, to different options in the menu. So I can go here and read about the provenance and just compare it to the object image and whatever other features that I might want to. And to exit reader mode, I can come up here to this bar and click off, and the, the view changes back to the regular view. So at this point, um, I wanted to talk about the, um, the toolbar that's here. You might notice this looks a little different. Um, the reader mode button is here, and again, that's an indication as to the view that you're looking at, and you can toggle on or off. Um, but the entry text must be viewed in reader mode, since we have the option of comparative images and footnotes. You can also hit Cite, and that brings up a drop-down in principle. There we go. Um, where we have citation text that you can cut and paste into a paper. And what's important about this text is that not so much the format, because we're going to allow users to put it into whatever format they want, but it's just a sampling of what we suggest. It also has a permanent URL, so a, otherwise known as a PERL. And because that, this is really important because if you wanted to put it in a dissertation and trust that that link will get you back to where you were in 20 years, you can do that. Um, this is pretty revolutionary. I, I have to say, as, um, as a scholar and also um, you know, something connected very much to Arthur's, um, uh, Arthur's experience writing books, is that you can always get back to something. And that is really, really important to us. You know that you can uh, copy and paste this text into your document, and you can always get back to the thing that you're looking at. 
Um, additionally, under archive versions, you can access any previous version that exists. So we'll have a version of the 1995 entry, if one exists, which we have for about 90 entries. Um, we'll also have the version, uh, the date that we go live, which is April 24th. So you'll see a version dated that date. And it will have a cut and paste URL there available. But you can also pull up the PDF if you want to look at it and compare what Arthur said in 1995 to what he said in 2014 or any other future revision. And the reason that we're looking at doing it this way is that if a new object enters the collection, and you may know we have had quite a few in recent, recent years, even since the project started, um, we can version then uh, whenever the curator says, okay, we want to look at this information again, we want to conserve a painting, we want to discover new things, or we have a new painting in the collection and we want to include it. Additionally, hitting export gives me a PDF that is generated on the fly and simply by clicking on the link, in principle, um, this pulls up a PDF of the whole trappings of an art object, um, including the entry text, the uh, provenance, the tombstone information, etc. And then you can actually download it. Um, one other item that I'm going to mention here, and I'm just going to talk about it, is we've enhanced how we use favorites. And we're in the final stages of, of finishing this part up, so I'm going to ask you guys to use your imagination a little bit. Um, you can add to favorites now currently on NGA.gov. But what you're going to be able to do going forward is if you have an account on NGA.gov, when you add something to your favorites, you're going to be allowed to use multiple lists. And this is pretty great for professors or anyone who wants to give a tour. You guys are from D.C. You have family coming into town. You want to say, hey, go see these paintings at the National Gallery of Art. You can actually make a bunch of different lists and say, this is my tour for my great aunt Sally. Or for professors, this is my Tuesday-Thursday class, and I want you to go see these objects or look at the collection information before you come to the gallery. We think this is really going to help enhance uh, the way that our, our scholars and um, visitors alike use the collection information. And um, we're really excited about debuting it when we go live on the 24th of April. Um, so I'm going to skip from here to the art object page, and I'll come back to this last little bit here, search, um, after we look at the artist page. Um, so by clicking on Johannes Vermeer, I get to the art object page, just like you do now. We've added some additional features here, like we've added a, an image if we have one, um, as well as a biography text with links to other artists in the collection, um, if we have information on them. And then we've also got works of art that are listed, and this is particularly helpful on the left, I'm sorry, on the, on the right-hand side, you'll notice that we have um, uh, links here or filters available so that you can see um, if you wanted to narrow down for Rembrandt, for example, by paintings only, you can easily do that without leaving the context of where you are. Um, so from here, the last little piece that I'm going to talk about on the toolbar, and I'll come back to the banner, is this search feature. And... What we have done with search, and hopefully I can get this to load, um, is we have tagged all of our art objects and artists with icon class terms. And you might be thinking, what the heck are you talking about? So if you're searching for something, one of the, the, main, the main things that we thought was so important is being able to find an art object or an artist easily using whatever terms you can possibly imagine. Um, so we've applied what's called a controlled vocabulary um, called icon class. And these terms will allow a user to find an art object and get to that object information quickly. You may not have that art, the information in the title of an object 
or in the entry text, but you can find it because we've tagged it that way. So if I wanted to do a search here, for example, if I'm looking on term, um, examples of vanitas, and if you don't know what it is, you can look it up. Just um, it's going to bring up search results that are only limited to the Dutch collection catalog. So I'm, I'm actually giving a controlled look into what the contents are of this particular catalog, and I can narrow down uh, based on the results that come back. So for example, um, Jan Davids de Haim may not mention Vanitas anywhere, but we tagged it with Vanitas so that you can find out. He, ha he explores the term Vanitas in his paintings, and you might want to take a look. So um, one other item that I'm going to do here just to close out um, before we go forward is going to the Dutch paintings of the 17th century page. The only way that you might know that we have something bigger than what is here just as an art object page or an artist page is this gray banner at the top that says NGA Online Editions and Dutch Painting 17th Century. So this, this banner appears anytime we have an online edition object or in the case of, um, of an artist, it'll just say NGA Online Editions. Um, if I click on Dutch Paintings of the 17th Century, it will bring me to the homepage for the catalog. And this is what I like to call the book jacket, so to speak. Um, from here, we have a lot of different options available to our users. So we have contents available. You can read notes on how we date an object, etc. We have an excellent essay that Arthur has written on the history of the Dutch collection. So some of the stories that you heard um, are in this particular entry. Um, we have details on recent acquisitions. So these are things that are forthcoming in the, in the, in the years following. And I do mean years, um, not days. Um, we also have a glossary of technical terms if you want to see everything all put together. And you can easily navigate to any of the artist pages right here. And if I scroll down a little bit more, you can see any of the artwork pages, and they're all sorted by title, so you can quickly jump to where you want to go. In the center, we have a little bit of explanatory text on the actual project, as well as links to landscapes, genre paintings. So if you want to explore things by category, you can go by that, that direction. Um, on the top here, we have the option to cite the catalog, so this will explain, just like we did in the, uh, on the art object page, how to cite this particular thing. Um, we also will have the entire 1995 PDF available online for download if you want to do it. It's about 1,400 pages, so caution. Um, as, same with the 2014 version, so we'll have a whole snapshot of the character of the collection as it exists now, and that will be done as on a proposed five-year basis or as our curator dictates. Um, and then lastly, on the right-hand side, we have a number of outward links, so we have some great educational materials that I hope you've already explored, such as our Dutch teacher packet, um, great information there. We have um, links to um, other podcasts, etc. And then we have these wonderful videos that have been prepared that hopefully, again, will help convey the enthusiasm that Arthur shares for this collection um, and give some nice introductory information to those who may not have visited the NGA, or if you're preparing a trip here, you can, you can learn a bit more about it. Um, I'm just going to use this as a teaser so that you all can go on the 24th of April, crash the site by clicking on all the links. So, um, and at this point, I um, just before I turn it over to Judy Metro um, to talk about what online editions is going forward, I do want to share um, my great thanks um, 
for, you know, to Arthur for uh, providing a new way of going forward. This is really saying Latin. This man uses nothing but PowerPoints now, so I'm really, I'm really proud of that. Um, and I, I really am thrilled that this um, presenting this con- collection information online really offers a new vehicle um, going forward. And um, it's, we're really thrilled to be part of the new firmament of the NGA.gov site. So, Judy, I'll let you take it to the, to the next slide. Thank you, Jen. Um, well, I think now that you've all had a uh, test drive through the wonderful sampling of material uh, connected with the Dutch painting site, I wanted to bring you back to the um, overarching endeavor here, which is the National Gallery of Art Online Editions. Um, it lives within NGA. It has a harmonious look and feel, um, same, shares the same navigation at the head and foot of the page, Uh, Right now, of course, it's looking quite Dutch, but uh, we soon envision adding visual clues to this banner um, as to upcoming collections that will be uh, featured on the site, and my colleague Sally Bury will will introduce you to those in a minute. So this banner mosaic will um, actually accommodate new additions. Uh, The page will accommodate new authors, will accommodate new artists and new works. And the accrual of these, we hope, will be that this page functions as the hub of um, scholarly, peer-reviewed, archived information on the gallery's collection of paintings, sculpture, and decorative arts. And we envision that to be about 5,000 works in all. Um, This is also a body of scholarship that the gallery is committed to updating and refreshing on a cyclical basis. And that already sets it apart from a great deal of content on on lots of websites. Um, From this landing page, one can search uh, by edition right here, whoops, right here, by author and by artist, as I said. And the page will also um, include a user's guide and frequently asked questions. So what is this all replacing? Um, this project is, is lightweight, certainly not in an intellectual sense, uh, but by virtue of its replacing a very long shelf of really heavy reference volumes. <clears throat> That's because the edition derives from and will eventually replace, and we think improve upon, a series of printed reference volumes that has been underway at the gallery since 1985. When completed, uh, the collections of the National Gallery of Art Systematic Catalog were to comprise 35 volumes and stand as really the encyclopedic reference to uh, the collections I mentioned earlier. The big catch, of course, is that the volumes are encyclopedic only up to their point of publication. 17 volumes have been published to date, and it's pretty much safe to say all of them are out of date. Um, In addition to shelf space and convenience, another positive gain of going online is that these catalogs are free of charge. The volumes they replace sell anywhere from 85 to 110, and it's no surprise that um, they're purchased largely by specialists and libraries. Here, we're opening up the same content with the benefits of rich media to anyone who has access to a computer um, 
and an interest in art. I'm sure many of you are aware that NGA, a couple of years ago, uh, announced that it was granting free access to about 30,000 images in, in the public domain. <clears throat> and perhaps some of you in, in this audience have already taken advantage of that. Free and open access to public domain images, um, and now to scholarly information about the collections, is a core part of the gallery's mission, and we're really hoping that this line of, on, of reasoning will sort of be catching for other museums and collections. Our initial impetus to bring these editions online um, was for scholars and students, uh, and that's why we created the wonderful customized reading environment that Jen showed you, and a toolkit geared to uh, trustworthy research and, and resources. But um, as everyone knows, considering that the potential audience is hugely increased online, we've added to the rich scholarly content a number of features geared to allure interested non-specialists to explore the world of Dutch painting. And whether you're scholars or students or simply curious about Dutch art, I hope you'll all begin that exploration on April 24th. And I'm turning this over to Sally. Um, I do want to note that Sally Bury is actually uh, the first editor we've hired who is dedicated to the permanent collection, which shows our dedication to this whole effort. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm kind of the new kid on the block here, so I really can't take credit for anything that you guys have seen here, but I'm very pleased to be the one that Jen is handing off the project management uh, uh, duties to, and um, what I want to uh, look at is uh, just take you very quickly to um, what our next projects are in this uh, in this wonderful endeavor. And just to tell you that even though Laszlo Zeke's group is sprinting to the finish line for April 24th for the Dutch version, um, they're also working on uh, what you're going to see next. And what's very interesting about uh, what we can do with the online versions of these catalogs is explain to you in a way a book never could um, the differences between these kinds of art and what you've just been seeing with um, the Dutch pictures, those are easel pictures. That's one picture that's about a story or a time or a place. Um, the Italian paintings of the 13th and 14th centuries that will be our next online edition are very, had a very different role in society. They're all pieces. They're all, many of them are fragments. And um, they're parts of altarpieces. They, they have relationships in groups. And Laszlo's team and our uh, capa very capable web team here are now working on a new way to present these kinds of works. And for example, what you're seeing here are uh, two pieces that we have of Duccio, who's a very famous uh, and well-known Sienese painter, um, of the uh, 13th and 14th centuries, his Maestà, which is one of the great works of art in art history. We actually own two pieces of that alt uh, famous altarpiece, and currently you can't really tell that easily on our, um, on our website. 
for the next online edition in our website, you'll be able to see that we have these two pieces, and you'll be able to see what the Maya style looked like according to our um, uh, the the author's uh, idea of, of what, how that was reconstructed. So we're really excited that. Um, how this project is built today is going to evolve, and we're going to be able to do a lot of new things. And in fact, just talking about um, being able to keep things updated, um, you've probably heard that the gallery is um, going to be able to take pieces from the Corcoran's collection, the things that are, as Arthur said, of the quality and merit that they belong in our collection, and in fact, we're going to get a new 14th century painting. Well, in the past, um, yeah, the book would have been out of date immediately. Now we're going to be able to develop an entry and um, put that into the book. Um, The other, after our Italian paintings, we're going to go to a whole new different uh, place. Uh, we're not doing this chronologically, obviously. We're going to look at American modernism. And two departments here at the gallery, uh, two curatorial departments are working on this, our uh, American and British paintings department and our modern and contemporary paintings department. So um, we'll be bringing that to you next. And um, I'm going to uh, hopefully leave you on a cliffhanger waiting for for these next editions, uh, and uh, bring Arthur back to answer questions. Thank you, Thank you Sally. That is, um, so that's our little story, and it is a, a, it's a rich one. It's got, I'm sure, uh, it's one we're all learning from. We, we have been learning constantly, and... Uh, um, I hope that you all have a few questions, and we would love to help um, answer any of them. I'd like to invite uh, Jen, Judy, Sally, and Les- Leslo up here, um, and we will just stay here as long as you'd like. Anybody doesn't want to stick around, you're free to go, but we, if anybody has questions, we would love to help you uh, discuss it. Maybe we'll learn from the answers, too. So. Yes? Right. That's an excellent question. The question is, um, with our new digital realm, are we um, intending to link to other collections um, around the world who have comparable works to to those in our uh, that you see here in Washington? Is that uh, Judy? Do you want to answer that? I think that's a, you know, it's a wonderful idea. It's, it's one of the ideas that we talked about when we got together with the other Getty Museums. But I think we all have so much on our plates just getting our own collections that that is the first step. I, I don't know when it will all get aggregated, but it may sometime. I mean, we're all on different technical platforms, so that makes it okay, more difficult. I'd like, I'd like to introduce Laszlo, um, Zeka, who's, it, he's the guy who tells us what's possible and what's not. 
and how much it's going to cost. <laughs> so thank you very much. It's a, it's, it's a very meaningful question. And Judy is absolutely right that, that the, it, it has its own challenges because obviously all of the museums are using different technology and so on. But there are a couple of uh, really important in- initiatives that we are part of. One of them is funded by the Mellon Foundation. It's called Research Space. And the very purpose of this initiative is to link the different museums' collections together and being able to browse them and kind of break down the walls. We are working with, the, uh, with our colleagues in Great Britain, and actually we are, uh, we are um, initiating new phases of this project. So actually if you go to the, to the British Museum, you are going to find already the links there. And we hope that in the next year or two we are going to be able to create more integration. That's one element. The other element, which is actually part of a much larger initiative, is the, is the um, link data or open link data initiative, where actually we are trying to link all of these, these institutions together. So uh, uh, the, uh, actually the early phases of this is, is already... Um, happening here at the gallery, but it's going to take another year or two by the time we are able to link most of the American museums. Now, back to you, sir. Uh, I, actually, uh, I just wanted to, to actually congratulate you and this wonderful uh, website. I'm actually a, a physician, and I, I teach medical school. I, I teach medical students. And we have uh, parts of, uh, of our education when, when we get uh, comments from the students, is that they get a lot of information. The thing they're missing is the professor. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed the, the presentation initially. You presented the same, the same documents as some of the other people, but you added something because you have experience and you respect your, your knowledge. And it's very difficult to do this online. But especially for those of us who not, are not in the, in the field, it will be very nice to have you in the line <laughs> somehow. <laughs> Um, that was sort of a question, um, and uh, I think that the, the 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 major takeaway from can I try to read um, is that it's very nice to have a personal um, uh, uh, touch to the information that one sees online. And uh, I totally agree with that. And, in fact, we have tried to do that. We didn't have time to present that material today. But one, in the, national, the Dutch um, homepage, we, there are these links to videos. And, and we have done um, three or four, uh, or four or five. Six. six? Oh, my God, six. <laughs> six of me standing in the galleries trying to talk about either the Rembrandt or the character of the collection or something about the history in, in ways that um, are hopefully will um, interject some of that personal excitement about these works. And ideally, what, the, what I hope for those will come of those is that it will give everyone... Uh, a sense that, oh my gosh, I can go look at this stuff too. And, and so it's, what I, I'm trying not to do is preach about the material, but just sort of give you a, 
vocabulary, a, a vocabulary and a, a you know, mood or mode to kind of go in and explore on your own. And that ideally is in the structure of what we've done here. There are lots of ways that we hope that it will encourage you to go explore within this, the, the, the structure that, that we have tried to develop here over the years. Oh, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Sorry. Okay, two questions. One, uh, directly for Jen about having an account, and the second is about exhibition catalogs going online. Um, so the question about having a user account, that's available right now. Um, if you were to be on an art object page, there's the option to favorite, add to my favorites. And when you click on the star right now, it will actually bring you to a login page, and that's where you can create your own user account um, for NGA.gov. And um, the nice thing is about the way that we've, we've envisioned favorites is that it's not, well, Dutch paintings are clearly the most important. Um, you can favorite other things. So um, it's only art objects to favorite at this point. But the idea is that, you know, again, it allows you as a user to develop whatever list that you might want to, preferably with the Dutch bend. So hope that helps. Mm-hmm. Judy, and, do you want to talk you, about the exhibition? Um, right now, uh, exhibition catalogs are desired objects on the most part, and they're saleable, and they're very difficult to put online in, and have the same wonderful effects. I mean, part of, part of the art book is having the quality materials and so forth, the objectness. And right now, we don't have plans to expand our... Um, digital program to exhibition catalogs, although we may, if there's one that, you know, shouts out for online presentation, we certainly are game to experiment. But uh, it's, it's really the reference volumes that we're, we're focusing on now. I, I must say that, this, that, that one of the, um, as far as I'm concerned, one of the important things in this whole process is... Um, being aware of the art of the possible. Um, and so one of the problems of online is, that, oh, my God, there's this and this and this. You can do all these things, um, but they'll never get done. And, and so with, uh, and I know that there's the, with the resource, how much time and the, the sort of thought has gone into this, um, it has been a pretty full-time endeavor. And I know that, Judy, you, you don't have 35 or 40 in your department, is that? No, no, okay. <laughs> so there's a kind of a limit to human, the human element. So we, you know, we ideally, I think there's a lot to be said for that, but I think that the art of the possible is let's, we're going to focus at this point on the collection catalogs. Yes, Sally. Um, one thing I will add, though, is that uh, right now in the publications department, we are looking at our backlist and considering things that may, we may put online uh, as PDFs in the future. So they won't, won't get this treatment, but they'll be available. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Yes, whoa, way back there. I have a question about um, disseminating the message online. This is a great tool. Do you have any plans for search engine optimization or tweet-ups or other events to help get the message out? 
Um, we, do you want to talk about that? You're, you're the one who's... Okay, that'd be great. Um, Jen- Jennifer, I think, the, can you repeat the question? Sure, sure, sure. And then, um, um, the question was how to basically get the word out that we're launching on April 24th, and you guys should take advantage of this great tool that's available. Um, so to start, we have, we have a great in-house um, press department here, and we've been talking to them to reach out to, um, uh, to scholarly uh, apparatuses such as Code Art um, for Dutch historians, historians of Netherlandish art. Um, and then we, we are relying, actually, on our local um, universities to, to hopefully get the word out. So we're, we're counting on you um, to spread the word. And um, the idea is that we will be able to really explore um, explore our local as well as our, our international um, forums for getting the word out. And then um, the other thing that I would mention is that the Getty um, in in addition to helping us create this amazing um, project, they're also going to be publicizing it for us because we are one of nine institutions um, working on this initiative. Um, our, our neighbors over at the Freer Sackler are part of this initiative, um, LACMA, SF MOMA, um, the Getty themselves, um, the Walker, uh, Art Institute of Chicago, um, and Seattle Art Museum. I'm sure I'm forgetting one. In any case, um, they're going to be helping us with that initiative. But um, I, I do think that you're hitting on an important point that's trying to get the word out about, you know, through social media to this tool, because this is a tool that we envision. I mean, at least for, for younger art historians, it's going to be really useful. And this is hopefully their go-to. So, so spread the word. Thank you all very much for being here and um, do spread the word. We, we, we are delighted and we're excited and we want everybody to, to know it and use it and enjoy it. So thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.